Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another Mold Talks Docs. Today, I have a very, very special guest, Dr. Neil Nathan. Dr. Neil Nathan, thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. And so I want to dive right in. Um, for those that don't know, and, and Dr. Nathan, I don't know that you even know yourself, but your book, Toxic, was kind of one of the first books that I stumbled on um, in my career as a remediator, trying to understand how you know, mold, bacteria, water damage, hones in general, really play a role into the holistic health. Um, as you know, may or may not know, many people uh, contact me for help with their home. And of course, I'm not a doctor, so I have very little information to give them on the body. So I send them to people like you. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting topic of conversation. Uh, and so I'm excited to dive in. The first question that I have is, what led you to writing your first book? Oh, boy. <clears throat> How much time do you have? <laughs> we have plenty of time. Okay. Okay. So uh, my first book actually was a step before mold became the focus of the kind of work that I do. But it did include something on mold toxicity. So the short story is um, I have been a board certified uh, family physician and board certified in pain management from my most of my professional career. And back in the early 80s, we began to see an odd creature, which was then called fibrositis, which we now call fibromyalgia. But it was something we really hadn't seen before. And it began as a kind of a slow epidemic and has gotten even more epidemic. This odd combination of fatigue, unrefreshing sleep, pain that migrates all over the body, cognitive impairments, irritable bowel, and several other issues. At the time, in general, when medicine can't explain something, it's in your head until proven otherwise. So unfortunately, patients were sent to psychiatrists to get therapy because you couldn't have all of those symptoms. Uh, we didn't know anything that caused all of those things. But psychiatry and the medication that psychiatrists used did not work. So it became clear to me that I don't, we didn't know what it was, but we learned. So in the early, by the early 90s, we had recognized that a wide variety of metabolic imbalances, things like magnesium deficiency, thyroid, adrenal, sex hormone deficiency. Um, we later learned about Lyme disease, viral infections, mold toxicity. That's kind of the sequence in which we learned that there were a lot of things that could produce chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, and that by addressing them, we could actually help the majority of people we saw. Now, this was not conventional medicine. Medi conventional medicine is still telling patients, uh, this is mostly in your head. If you have chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, um, we don't know what to do for you. But many of us did, even by the mid nineties. So, Working with Jacob Teitelbaum and chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, we were really able to help a lot of folks. Um, in 2005, I, a patient came into my office and put a book down on my desk and said, read this. I said, okay. Uh, I, and I put it on 
on a big pile because I read voraciously. And she said, no, 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 I don't think you understand. I want you to read it now. I'm paying for you at this visit to read this book. I said, okay, great. I love to read. You want to pay me to read? <laughs> Fabulous. I'm not sure how I get this as a job, but this is cool. And it was Richie Shoemaker's book, Mold Warriors. And fortunately, <laughs> excuse me, in the beginning of the book, he outlines what he called the biotoxin pathway. And the biotoxin pathway is a very detailed explanation of how mold toxin affects so many different systems of the body. I read it and I went, wow, this guy's got it. So I literally got on the phone and called Pocomoke, Maryland, where Dr. Shoemaker lived. And I said, I want to come out and study with you. And at the time, he was a bit leery. He said, who are you and why would I want you to show up on my doorstep? And I explained a little bit about who I was and my interest in helping complicated patients. And he, so he said, yeah, yeah, come on out and visit me. So I, I did. And I began working with Dr. Shoemaker. Um, over the years, he and I um, agreed to disagree about quite a few aspects of how to treat mold toxicity, but that's how I got into it. My basic interest started with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, but we began to learn fairly quickly that other major issues like Lyme and mold was the major contributing factor to a lot of our patients who got very, very sick. And so you wrote that book, obviously, as a way to get that information out there, I would imagine. So the first couple of books were um, on hope and healing and healing is possible. Those were written in 2007, 2013. They were an overview of all of these things we had learned about how to treat chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And there was a chapter in there on Lyme and a chapter in there on mold. Um, in 2013, uh, Dr. Joe Brewer, who was a friend of mine, uh, is an infectious disease specialist in Kansas City, published a fabulous paper in which he took 112 patients with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and measured mold toxin in their urine. It was a new test. It was just recently out from real-time laboratory. And 92% of his patients had a massive amount of toxin, mold toxin in their urine. And he went, wow. <clears throat> and when he treated them, the vast majority got well. And so Joe, I, I view, is responsible for really taking the information that was created by several physicians before Dr. Shoemaker, Dr. Michael Gray, for example. And then Joe's work really put it on the map. And he added the concept, which was different and one that Dr. Shoemaker doesn't agree with, that once exposed to mold, mold actually gets into the body. It colonizes in the sinus and gut areas where it makes toxin ongoing. Now, that was a huge realization for us because people would often come in and say, I live in a brand new building. I there can't possibly be mold where I'm living right now. And by the way, that's not correct. But yeah. <laughs> that, as you know, 
But they would say that. They said I couldn't possibly. And then Joe and I would ask people, well, did you ever live in a moldy environment? They would say, well, yeah, about three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, I lived in a basement, which was had black stuff growing on the walls. Um, but that couldn't explain what I have now, could it? And the answer became a resounding, absolutely. So even if you move out of a moldy building and you're carrying with you most, not all, but most people are carrying the mold in their gut, in their sinuses, it's making the toxin. And so that has to be considered in treatment. So with that addition to our understanding, people who have complicated presentations with a wide array of symptoms, it turns out that many, maybe most, have mold toxicity. And it's, we now identify it as an epidemic. It's estimated that there are 10 million people in this country alone who have some degree of mold toxicity at this point. And unfortunately, most of the medical profession doesn't know much about it yet, and often still dismisses these folks as, well, it's in your head. You can't possibly have all these symptoms because nothing causes all these symptoms. And the, the actual statement should be, nothing I know of does that. But that's not the same, that, that many things I know of can cause those symptoms. And that's what people need to learn. Yeah, no, you make some really great points. Um, and it brings up a lot of good questions that I can't wait to ask you. Like, okay. Fire first away. off, 10 million people. Do you think that's conservative? Yes. Yeah, me too. And, you know, and the reason I ask that is because, I mean, all I get are people who are not feeling well and looking for guidance on their homes and how to fix their homes. So they're not no longer in that exposure so that when you put them on a treatment program, they're not, you know, uh, re-entering the body at that point. But I wonder how mold, bacteria, water damage, et cetera, impacts otherwise healthy people people who are not known to be environmentally susceptible or do not have pre-genetic dispositions. Do you, do you have any insight on that? Um, yeah, I do. <laughs> not gonna <laughs> surprise you. <clears throat> well, having treated three or 4,000 people successfully with mold toxicity, we've learned a bit. Um, we know a whole lot more now than when we first started doing this in 2005. We have way more information and way more tools and we're much better at it than we used to be. Um, so originally, Dr. Shoemaker thought that it was only people who were genetically susceptible to mold that could have a mold toxin illness. And I wanna distinguish for our listeners, we've always known in medicine about mold allergy. Mold allergy will cause you know, sinus congestion, runny nose, asthma, um, sinus headaches, and things like that. This is not that. Mold toxicity is a completely different critter, which involves mold toxin setting off what we call an inflammatory cascade, a series of inflammatory cytokines that affect the body in a very specific way that can affect virtually every organ of their body. And that means these folks can present, depending on their own unique genetics and biochemistry, they can present with fatigue, cognitive impairment, um, anxiety, depression, uh, shortness of breath, air hunger, um, 
every type of gastrointestinal upset you can imagine, sinus, headache, um, pain involving muscles, joints, um, neuropathies of different type, like peripheral neuropathies, different type of neurological events, um, so that virtually every system that someone could complain of a symptom could be mold toxicity. And often it's a complicated mishmash, which is why physicians, if they aren't aware of this, would go, you've got too many symptoms. This has got to be in your head. And the answer is, it is not. It's in your body. So to answer your question, Dr. Shoemaker originally thought this was purely genetic. If you were one of the unlucky people to have maybe 25% of the population to have genes that would not allow you to process mold toxin, you were the ones who were gonna get sick. However, the longer we study that, the more we, we realize, no, it's not that simple. If even if you're not genetically predisposed, if you have enough of an exposure, if you are living in a moldy and, and basement for long enough, you'll probably get sick. So it's not as simple as genetics. It's prolonged exposure, in my experience, will also lead people who uh, will get sick, even though it's genetically not in their cards. There's a, a big misnomer that you hear of often. I'm sure you've heard the same thing. Well, there's mold outside, but I'm not sick <laughs> outside. I'm sick inside, right? And so I'm not a doctor, but just being someone who's relatively into the science, uh, I look at it, well, there's going to be an abundance of particles inside versus outside. There's less volume of air inside versus outside, right? So the dilution is going to be totally different. And I would imagine that the amount of particles that are coming into contact with the body is, is definitely going to have an impact. Um, right. Do you agree? I do, but I want to add to that. Everything you're saying is absolutely correct. And I'm talking to you now from my home in Northern California. I live in the Redwoods and outside my window is a Redwood forest. There are probably a thousand species of mold out there. Um, and they all have their own ecological niche. Um, there's mold that prefers redwood trees, azaleas, rhododendrons, tan oaks. Every, every species you can imagine lives in its own little ecological niche. Now those mold species make toxin, not to make us sick, but to keep other molds out of their space. They want, I like where I am and you can't come in here. That's why they make toxin. Yeah. It's, a, it's a threat mechanism. If a mold feels threatened, it will make toxin to, uh, to keep other things away. However, of the thousand species out there, there might be seven or 10 that are actually toxic. So the vast majority of things out there are not toxic. Now, if I were allergic, I could have a reaction in the woods. But since I'm not, um, I can walk with impunity through the woods and I'm not worried about getting mold toxicity. Not gonna happen. So if someone were to say there's mold all over the place, that can't be an explanation. They're not understanding. In a water damaged building, what happens is some of the toxic mold species grow unopposed. In other words, their own natural um, inhibitions from 
other mold species all around them, which is impairing their growth. No, you can't grow here because I'm keeping you away. Doesn't occur inside of a wall where there aren't other mold species. So those species grow unopposed. And so not only are you correct about the particle size, but we're getting standalone species that are growing with no opposition and they grow like wildfire because there's nothing to contain them. And then we're off to the races. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and since you brought up Dr. Richie Shoemaker so much, I wanted to ask about, uh, it, you obviously know he dropped a bomb uh, about actinomycetes and the prevalence of actinomycetes is more than we think. Um, and that he thinks that that's more related to, to the health issues that we experience. Um, I've looked at some of the studies myself, curious to, do, do you agree to disagree with that? Are you in agreement yeah, with that? Yeah, I'm gonna to agree to disagree here. Um, first of all, he made that pronouncement based on a type of measurement, which is still not standardized or solid, which he's got a, um, it's called transcriptonomics. It's a measure, a way to measure the RNA genetics of a person in great detail. We're still just learning about it. It's really in its infancy. <clears throat> but Dr. Shoemaker believes that he has, that he can interpret it to show that actinomyces is more important than mold in causing these symptoms. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, first of all, the science behind that statement isn't yet solid. So I don't know that I can buy it. Are actinomyces involved? We've known that forever. Um, mold toxicity is never just mold or mycotoxins or mold fragments, but also includes VOCs, uh, volatile organic compounds. It also includes actinomyces. It also includes a variety of protein derivatives that are irritating. So when people talk about mold toxicity, it isn't just mold, it's an inflammatory soup in their environment. Are actinomyces involved? Yes. We don't know to what extent, and I think that Dr. Shoemaker's statement is premature and not helpful. And really not helpful because we don't have treatment for it, but we do have treatment for mold. And so in my experience, if we treat the mold, people get well. So whether they have actinomyces or not, it appears moderately irrelevant to their healing process, which as a physician is all I care about, which is if I'm treating you in a particular way and you get well, that's my job. And if I've done my job well and you get well, I don't have to go anywhere else. So forgive me, but yeah. I don't think that actinomyces is helpful may be correct, I, I'm even questioning that, but not helpful because if people start ignoring the mold and focusing on ectomyces, what are you gonna, how are you gonna treat them? Because we don't have any treatments for them. That's, that's my current understanding. Well, it's interesting about what you said too, just to kind of tie into that from, from the home side, you know, I've been helping families for the last decade I've uh, done well over a thousand homes at this point. 
And we didn't have the data on actinomycetes. We were just treating mold. And of course, when you're using broad spectrum botanical products, you're going to handle bacteria as well. When you're cleaning a home, you're going to be removing every particle, whether it's a bacterial particle or a mold particle. So, you know, I think that there's enough to be said that we're getting success helping people with removing mold from their home, these toxins, these particles. So yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, we've always done that way. We've had success. We've gotten people back into their homes. They had healthier environments, treatments with working with doctors. So I, I, I am in agreement with that. Um, I'm, I'm definitely curious to see how the data develops and if there's any techniques that I can do in people's homes to, to make them feel better. I'm highly interested. But I too, when I look at, uh, have you seen in the actinomycetes test for the home by utilizing the dust? I, have. I mean, and, it and, is. And forgive me, but the transcriptonomic test, which is called a Janey test and the actinomycetes test happen to both be done by labs that he owns. Mm. And that's not something he shares. So mm. I have a little bit of difficulty when people have an economic um, investment in making certain statements that appear to be scientific from which they profit and they don't um, announce that publicly. Yeah, so, that's a good point. So I, I, I've always had problem with that. It, it's okay to have an economic investment, but I think you need to be telling the public. And by the way, um, I own the company that does this test. Yeah. Yeah, that negates the conflict of interest if people know about it. You know? Correct. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate your guidance on that because we get calls all the time now. Like, I just want to remove the actinomycetes. And it's like, well, you know, we, well, it's coming from the same place where the mold is. So we got to take care of, you know, the issue properly. Uh, so thank you for shedding light on that. Uh, you have a new book that you recently released, right? Yeah, and so. I, right, I do. Um, it's called Energetic Diagnosis. And it's really completely different. So it's not quite germane to this conversation, um, but it's about honoring one's own intuition and particularly for people who work in the medical field, honing their intuition to help them improve their ability to diagnose and treat. Because at this point, the kinds of patients we're seeing are really complicated. It's not like we're seeing strep throats where we do a strep throat culture. You have strep, I give you penicillin, you get well, great, that's easy. For chronic illness, which is the majority of what physicians are seeing in their office right now, most of them are based around a chronic inflammatory response, which is complicated. And in order to work your way through those complications, I believe that people need to focus on their intuition. And there's a whole host of new devices that are now out that help to define your energy so that we can see energetic imbalances and fix them. And we can use those devices for diagnosis and treatment. So my new book, which is called Energetic Diagnosis, is simply about that. Um, could be helpful to people in the same diagnostic realm. But for your audience, I think you'd be much more interested in my book, Toxic, which you alluded to before, um, which is a really comprehensive overview of 
what mold toxicity consists of and how it interfaces with a lot of other medical conditions and how to treat it. So for a lot of people, that might be a better starting point if this is your interest. And I recently rewrote my ebook, which is called um, um, Molds and Mycotoxins, Current Evaluation and Treatment 2022. I had written the first ebook in 2016 and we updated it. Now, the beauty of that is it's short. It's about 40 pages, just about mold, so that for people who don't want to wade through a larger book, you can get a kind of a cliff note understanding of what mold toxicity is and how to treat it. And so a lot of people find that to be a value. So anyway, that's a- No, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, that's a, a self-promoting things. I don't do a lot of that, but I think your audience might find those helpful. No, and I think, I think you know, I, I want to promote your book because I, I think it's important for people to have that information. It helped me in, in my journey in figuring out how to help others. So I think if that can do the same for other people, whether they're remediators, inspectors, or people going through a mold journey themselves, I think it's really important. I wanted to kind of touch on inflammation a bit. Um, I look at health as, as a holistic thing. I, I don't look at it as something that, uh, you know, just we have to have one thing has to occur necessarily to drop our health. Um, and so with that being said, inflammation obviously is a big thing we know about. Um, and I wanted to know, do you think that there's specific species that cause inflammation or, or specific toxins, or is it just the toxic soup that we're dealing with and the abundancy of these particles? Well, we know that not all mold toxins, I kind of alluded to this before, um, are toxic to humans. For example, one of the things that I like patients to do as a preliminary step in looking at their homes are to do what are called mold plates, which is simply taking a Petri dish, taking the top off, putting it on the floor of the room, letting it be exposed to air for a couple of hours, put the top back on and watch what grows. If mold is growing on those plates, I like it to be sent to a laboratory to get analyzed. Now to your question, when we look at what's growing on those plates, half of the species that grow there are not toxic to humans, doesn't matter. So just because you have an ugly looking plate doesn't mean you have a house that is a concern. But if you have um, several species, Aspergillus, Penicillium, Altenaria, Fusarium. Those are the things that tend to grow on those plates. Those are toxic mold species. So again, there's several other named toxic mold species like uh, Wallemia, uh, um, Stachybotrys, um, and a few others. But there aren't that many named toxic mold species that people need to be exposed to. So not all mycotoxins um, are an issue. They are for other molds, but not necessarily for us. So I think the beauty of how we diagnose mold toxicity in people with a urine mycotoxin test, where you literally collect your urine, we send it to a lab that measures mold mycotoxins. And there are about a dozen that we can measure in the urine at this particular point. And if you have toxins in your urine, bingo, you have it. 
It's, it's kind of that simple. And by knowing which toxins are in that person's urine, we can be much more specific about how to treat it. Yeah, they, there's some confusion on the whole urine analysis. There's some people that say, you know, it's not really valid or oh, it doesn't mean there's a problem in your home. It could have came from food. I just want to, I just want you to know, I look at this, this data all the time. And typically if I'm seeing ochratoxin A inside their, their real-time labs report, and I'm seeing high levels of aspergillus in their home, you can kind of make that correlation, don't you think? Absolutely, you can. So um, most of the objection to the accuracy of, of urine mycotoxins comes from Dr. Shoemaker, who has never embraced the test and has never looked at it. Um, he just doesn't like the lab that originally started doing it for reasons that are not even scientific, but are actually personal. And, and unfortunately, that means that with all of the patients that he sees with mold toxicity, he's never actually done a urine mycotoxin test. So he doesn't have the experience that the rest of us have in seeing very, very clear correlation between the amount of stuff on that test and the diagnosis. And when we cure it, when we get that urine cleared where it no longer shows any, our patients are well. So there's a very direct, and for myself, I've done thousands of these. And as you probably know, I teach, I have a mentorship program in which I teach over 150 physicians um, how to do this. And I'm in very close touch with the entire group. And virtually all of them have seen the same thing that I'm seeing. So if I was the only one seeing it, well, maybe I'm deluded in my perceptions, but I now have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of physicians who have been doing these tests and seeing this correlation. So to say that it's meaningless, I, I can't agree with. And I would add one more piece to that, uh, which is another objection is some people say, again, we're talking Shoemaker, that um, everybody has it in their urine. So it's not a useful test. Now, the Great Pines Lab published a paper a couple of years ago taking 82 people who were controls, meaning they had no mold toxicity, and 102 people who had known mold toxicity, and just checking the urines to see, okay, what's there? How do controls normal people compare with people who have mold toxicity? So it turns out there is one toxin, which is ochratoxin, one of the most common, that was present in 50% of controls, but only to the tune of 1.6, which is a minuscule amount. Whereas the people who had mold toxicity, who had ochratoxin, averaged greater than 18. There's a huge difference between 18 and 1.6, and it's very easy to exclude those those patients who had a minuscule amount of ochratoxin. No other mycotoxin was present in the urine of controls to any appreciable degree. So I, I think that in my mind puts to rest the concept that everybody has toxins in their urine. If you have an appreciable amount of ochratoxin in any other mycotoxin, it's there. 
Can I make an argument for you on your behalf, actually? Fine, go ahead. Aspergillus is the most prevalent mold in our homes. And so how do we know that those 50%, just because they weren't displaying symptoms of mold toxicity, how did we not know that they didn't live in homes that had high levels of aspergillus, right? We all have modern ventilation systems. Aspergillus loves to grow in, in our HVAC systems. We don't really have proper filtration unless you're in the know and you get like a MERV 16 filter. Um, but I would argue that, you know, aspergillus is what people typically associate mildew with right? It's mm -hmm. from the Asco Mycota kingdom, just like mildew is, right? So that's, that's one of the things that I think it's often overlooked. So I would argue that those 50% of people probably did have aspergillus in their homes. And of course, that's not, I can't prove it, but, you know, just kind of looking at the prevalence, I, I see aspergillus in, in pretty high amounts in every single home that I'm in. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to throw that out there that it's worth uh, taking a look at. Yep. That is entirely possible. And well, and well said. I'm also going to toss out another subject that people talk about. Um, again, this is a shoemakerism, which is that most of our mold toxin comes from food. And again, I did another study with Great Plains a couple of years ago. It was a small study. We had eight patients. And, and basically what we did is we had them avoid all foods known to potentially carry mold toxin for 10 days. And we did a urine mycotoxin test on them. And then we had them pig out on all of those foods for the next 10 days and ran another mycotoxin test. So thinking is, if there was any appreciable amount of mycotoxin, it would show up in their urine at that point. We were kind of surprised that seven of the eight patients, their urine mycotoxin went down eating supposedly mold toxic food, at least potentially mold toxic food. And one patient had a slight rise in okra toxin when that happened. So although it is known that there is occasionally rare epidemics of toxicity, when people get into a, a silo full of moldy grain or peanuts that are filled with aflatoxin and they eat some of those, those are rare. And the, although there is minuscule amounts of mold mold toxin in some of the food we eat. Um, the vast majority of people who work in my field feel that it really comes from damaged buildings, water damaged buildings. It's what we're inhaling that makes us sick, not what we eat. Oh, these are, this is great. This has been a great conversation regarding the, uh, you know, urine analysis, which I, you know, people utilize every day. Um, we are seeing correlation. So as long as we're seeing correlation, I think, keep it up. Right. And I think we can keep that going. Uh, one more question on the urine analysis before we move away from that. Um, there has been, you know, kind of rare cases where someone is uh, dealing with mold toxicity, but it's not showing up on the urine analysis. And the thought behind that is the fact that they're so blocked that they're not detoxifying it at all, and it's not showing up in their urine. Have you seen stuff like that or can comment on that? Yeah, I have. So first of all, you're correct. One of the things that mold toxin does to the body is that it literally poisons the organs of excretion, making detoxification severely compromised, meaning it's in their body, but they literally can't pee it out into the urine to be collected for the test. So in our, in our sickest patients who are the most detoxificationally compromised, often 
they will have a negative test when we first start or very, very borderline test. And then when we treat them and we test them later, four to six months later, after we've improved their ability to detoxify by getting rid of toxin, then it goes sky high. Now, there is one other explanation for what you're describing, which is there are certain toxins that we can't measure that will make people sick, like walemia. There's no test currently on the market that measures walemia or the two toxins that it makes. So you could have mold toxicity and we're just not measuring what's causing it. So there are reasons for that. And I would say I've treated several dozen people throughout my career who had negative tests when we started, but every symptom in the book of mold toxicity. And when we treated them, they got well. And later on, most of them, but not all, had high levels of toxin in the urine as they improved. Mm. Uh, but again, not all. And I, get, I think some of them may be people who had toxins that we can't measure yet. No, those are great points. And I think, you know, it just, it's helpful for people to kind of hear that from you. Um, when we talk about remediation, let's, let's use the word either remediation or mold avoidance as in, as in two relative terms, because some people uh, are renters, they don't have the option of remediating. Um, and obviously homeowners, they do have that option. Uh, when we talk about remediation, and I'd, I'd love to kind of have more of a roundtable discussion around that because uh, it's, I, I'd love for you to hear about kind of what I'm seeing in the field. Um, but how important is either mold remediation or mold avoidance uh, in the healing journey as far as getting out of the exposure? Well, the answer to that is it's crucial. Uh, the bottom line is, you can't get well if you're still being exposed to mold. And I'll say it again. And this is one area where Dr. Shoemaker and I are in complete agreement, which is you can't get well if you are still being exposed to mold. <clears throat> you can get better a bit by treating it if you stay in a moldy environment, but you can't get well. So I know that for many people, for financial reasons, for social reasons, for a variety of absolutely valid reasons, moving is not possible or even unthinkable. But I beg my patients to find a way to live in another environment until they get better. Uh, stay at a parent's house, a friend's house, whatever you can afford or however your family can help you. Because until if you're in a rental, um, move, if at all humanly possible. And if you own it, um, uh, if possible, remediate. And as you know, not all spaces are remediatable. Some are really, you almost have to strip it down to the studs and start all, right. all over again. Um, so work with someone who knows what they're doing so they can give you that kind of advice and tell you, okay, this is what you need to do, but you somehow have to find a way to leave that exposure. That's great advice. And I'd love to talk about remediation for houses that are remediatable, which um, obviously it always comes back to what's it going to cost, right? Yes. Because is the cost and versus the worth makes sense financially. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, there's times where I've had to tell people you're, you're actually going to be more cost-effective knocking the house down and starting over. 
people with basements that have just have like severe water issues that would just cost too much to rip the house out, redo the foundation. It's, it, you know, there's some interesting strategies there that have to be discussed and talked about. Um, but one of the things that I've stumbled upon and why most remediations don't aren't successful is because I've, as you know, there's 50,000 remediation companies out there and probably 90% of them uh, are just insurance contractors, if you will. And so when I noticed how I got into this industry is very, very interesting. Second generation restoration contractor. My father has been doing fire restoration since I'm five. And so I've been around fire, water, mold damage, you know, pretty much my entire life. But it actually, it wasn't until Hurricane Sandy, because ha I happen to be from the Northeast, where I started to notice a pattern of people getting sick. And these people were, were already remediated and they were not, they were not getting well. Um, and that's when I started to really dive into it. That's when I found your book. That's when I started, you know, uh, researching several different mm -hmm. doctors and trying to understand what's going on. Um, I got real interested in the IICRC, the ACAC, and really did my homework. Um, there was one thing that was apparent that was abundantly clear to me. And it's, I was looking at just basic microbiology. We have a living organism like mold and bacteria. And while they're alive, they're constantly producing spores. They could be producing toxins, right? Um, and what happens is these things get aerosolized. They traverse across the house and through inhalation and obviously through the pores of your skin, they can get into the body. And so it was really interesting to me that cleaning was, was not really a big thing talked about in remediation. And so everyone wants to open up the drywall and spray some chemicals because that's, you know, that's an easy thing to do. But nobody wants to talk and confront the real elephant in the room, which was all the cleaning that you need to do because these spores get abundantly get into the environment. Um, and so as I started kind of figuring out how to clean homes um, and remove these particles after the sources were addressed, that's when we started seeing the best results where people were like, wow, it makes a huge difference. I feel a lot better. My protocols with my doctors are working. Um, and so I, I wanted to kind of highlight that to you and, and hope, uh, you know, we can have a roundtable discussion on that and see if there's any comments or thoughts you have based upon that. Um, my stance has always been, I'm not a remediator. That's your field. Sure. So when I have questions in that area, I call upon my remediation when patients ask me questions like, um, I'm going to move houses. What can I take with me when I leave that's safe? That's not my area of expertise and I don't sure. even claim for it to be. That's yours. Sure. So <clears throat> forgive me, but I'll let you answer those questions. Okay. I, so I, will, I will say in agreement with what you're talking about that painting kills over an area of mold <clears throat> or using Clorox <clears throat> on mold absolutely does not work. So for those folks who, whose landlords come in and try to cover over an area of mold, um, you are asking for trouble. That is not gonna work. You have to find out where it is, literally remove it, excise it, get that area out and then do the cleaning. So with your basic description, I'm in complete agreement. The details, sure. sorry, Michael, that's not my field. No, 
No, I get that. And I don't want to get into the weeds of the details. Mine was more just kind of analyzing the science and how that relates to the health in terms of. To say that the more thoroughly you remediate, the better the results. Absolutely. Doing a half-baked job has led to a lot of people spending a lot of money and staying sick. Yeah. And that, and that was, that kind of brought me to my next question. Do you see a lot of people that unfortunately undergo, you know, failed remediation strategies, or I would, should say that where the remediation strategy wasn't as thorough or they didn't do a great of a job and they're still dealing with issues? Yeah, absolutely. I see it all the time. Yeah. Just like in the medical field. I mean, we have some standards, but they're, they're nowhere near where they need to be. And they differ greatly from professional to professional, which is obviously part of the problem. Um, well, thank, thank you for kind of exploring that with me a bit and commenting on that. You know, I think it's helpful just for people to know that it's just, just as equally as important to select the right doctor, you need to select the the right team. And that's Mm -hmm. goes for inspectors too, right? Because here's the other problem. A lot of people, they get some of these antiquated, uh, professionals in in the industry. They just do like an air test in the center of the room and you're not getting the full picture of what's there. So you probably have patients that you're saying, look, go get your house inspected. I know there's mold there and they're coming up short because they're, you, you're, when you're hiring somebody who's not up to date on all the technologies available to identify if you do have a mold problem, that's another big issue. Yeah. I urge people to not be satisfied by um, air sampling. So, I mean, as you know, air sampling simply means taking the sample of air from the center of a room. And forgive me, that's great for landlords or uh, uh, contractors to prove that there's no mold there because that's not where the spores are. Spores are heavier than air and they fall to the floor. So if you're taking air sampling, you are not gonna get a correct picture of what's there. Um, And so I urge people to work with people who understand that and dig deeper. No, well said. I really appreciate that because I think, you know, a lot of people get lost in that part of it. Um, certainly, I think it's an important part to discuss. Um, when, when dealing with mycotoxins, right, we, we, we've been talking about toxins. I don't think we've actually mentioned the word mycotoxins. Maybe we did in passing. Um, there's only, I know in the house side of things, there's only roughly five mycotoxins we can test for within the dust. Um, obviously there's, there's much, much more out there, right? There's over a hundred thousand species of mold. There has to be, uh, way more than five mycotoxins. Um, do you think that we currently have the, the, the main five that we should be concerned about, uh, under control or are there others that you think we need to advance technology to detect? Um, I don't think we have a handle on it. I think there are things we don't know how to measure yet. Um, and I think that when we do, uh, our eyes are going to open even further to, oh, we've been missing this, and oh, we've been missing that. Um, so um, answer is, yeah, I, the future is growing as grassroot consciousness is growing that this is a serious problem, and um, the medical profession hasn't embraced it yet but more and more physicians are beginning to understand this, make the diagnosis. And over time, it is my fervent hope that the, uh, the CDC and the NIH will start taking this seriously and do the research. Again, 
if there are 10 million Americans suffering with it, we need more research, more scientifically validated studies to help us help patients more. Yeah, I believe we only spent a million dollars last year on funding for research into indoor air quality. It's not a lot of money. It sounds like a lot, but it's not. It's nothing to drop in the bucket compared to uh, the need. I mean, how could air quality be of so little interest? I, if, I, I live in California, right? And mm. we have been plagued by horrific wildfires. And the Bay Area wasn't even in the wildfires, but was so inundated by smoke last year and the last previous years that for six weeks, the air quality was such that you shouldn't go out of doors. And don't we think we should be studying that? We're talking yeah. about millions of people being exposed to these wildfires. Um, I mean, the drought continues. Um, I don't see it stopping. Global warming is a reality. And, yeah. and the, uh, the American public needs to know more so we can deal with this. Um, to my knowledge, this amount of poor air quality for six weeks straight in any community has never existed before and has never been studied. Oh, it's very interesting. I have this uh, almost like a punchline that I say all the time. You know, we take over 20,000 breaths per day, right? We're consuming more air than food, water, vitamins, you name it but yet it's not even on our list of things to check or to be concerned about. And, you know, and it's obviously we talked about air tests. So just to tie that in, not just talking about what's in the air at that exact moment, but what's in our dust eventually gets inside our bodies too, yeah. you know? And so it's really important to kind of look at the, the overall picture there because I, I I'm right there with you. We need way more funding for research. Um, you know, we're, we're still at an infancy in, in this studying in, in the, the medical diagnosis is the, the ability for us in, in people's homes to fix things. Um, so we could use some government assistance. I actually have a uh, foundation that I've started called change the air. And one of the things that we're going after is policy change. Do you know that mold is not a health hazard in any state in America? <laughs> I would not be surprised one bit. The, um, the building industry and the insurance industry have worked very, very hard to minimize any scientific validation of mold toxicity. You may not be aware of it, but they will settle every single legal case that is pending so that there's no legal precedent, so that they will not be held responsible for what's happening sure. and they know what they're doing. So um, having been involved in several of those, I am astonished at the amounts of money that they're willing to throw at people so that if someone has a particularly valid legal case and, and wants to take them to court, they will move heaven and earth to not have a legal judgment rendered. So, totally. uh, this is, so which I think we're all on the same subject here. Yeah, 
No, it's exactly right. And I, I've seen that. I've seen all the settlements throughout the years. Uh, I actually have kind of developed a little timeline cheat sheet of all the different settlements that have, that have happened um, behind closed doors. Because you're right, they don't want precedence. And I get that. But that's in the legal system. The nice thing about it is we have state regulations, right? And I think that the evidence is becoming more alarmingly increasing to where they're going to have to do something, you know, regardless of who funds whose campaigns. Um, and, and that's what I'm excited to see and hopefully uh, help what I can drive the force. And when the time is right, we'll definitely reach out and see if uh, you can get involved with some of this, the, the medical data that you have uh, to help, you know, put a pretty bow on everything. Um, I try not to be uh, politically involved. Um, right. I, I am working more in the educational realm than I am in the political realm. I'm not really a political animal and I've always treasured my license. There's this habit when people annoy the system, the system somehow reaches out to take away their medical licenses. So I, I have worked very hard to stay under the radar politically. So forgive me, but I'm probably gonna keep trying to stay under the radar so that I, I can keep that. helping people the way I do. Uh, no, I respect does it, that. Th does the political change need to happen? Absolutely. And I respect that you're willing to go to bat to make that happen. That's great. Well, there's no medical license they can take of mine. So oh. I'm in the clear there. Well, Dr. Neil Nathan, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate everything that you're doing. Uh, I know that you're helping people. You've been helping people for a long time. The education piece that you're doing is really helpful for people. Uh, I love that you're standing up for what you believe in, you know, and, and really making a stance, even in the medical community of what you're seeing and what's right. Um, so, so thank you for all of that. What, one last question for you is, you know, if there was one thing that you wanted someone to hang on to someone that's going through a mold journey themselves, um, you know, what would that be? It would be, be patient um, and stick with it. The, the biggest problem I see in my patients is that they want a quick fix. They want it to be done as soon as humanly possible. Many of them are unable to work or have lost their jobs or have lost their families because of their illness, very serious illness, really affects people profoundly. And many of them have unrealistic expectations of how long this journey takes. So it takes at least a year, sometimes two or three or even more to get the mold toxin out of their bodies and to heal. But my take home message is always, we can treat it. This is treatable. You can get well, but please stick with whatever treatment program you're getting because it's going to take more time than you want. Well said. Well, thank you very much for being here today, taking time out of your day to help educate those. And uh, I really appreciate that, Dr. Neil Nathan. Thank you so much. It was an honor having you today. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate being here.